Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and welcome to the Lead from the Heart podcast. According to a recent Harvard University study of over 200 companies, strong workplace culture increases net income by 756% over 11 years. And it's remarkable research findings like these that have many leaders today wondering what exactly defines a strong workplace culture and what are the specific cultural ingredients that truly drive organizational excellence? Well, these are the questions that I hope to answer in our podcast, and I'm thrilled to be joined by someone who spent the past four years researching eight of the world's most successful organizations, and these include the brilliant global design firm IDEO, the five-time MBA champion San Antonio Spurs, the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6, and what he came away with was a very clear understanding of what makes high-achieving organizations so remarkable along with the rather stunning discovery that their greatness can be boiled down to three highly uncommon and untraditional leadership practices. On a Sunday afternoon just a few weeks ago, I read Daniel Coyle's new book, The Culture Code, cover to cover. And the first thing I did afterwards was to email him, connect with him on LinkedIn, and ask him if he would please come on this podcast. You see, I was anxious to discuss his findings because what he discovered was that the leaders of remarkably high-achieving cultures defy conventional wisdom. And as you're about to hear, what defines these leaders and organizations is that they intentionally, in effect, affect the hearts of people. So with that as a prelude to our discussion Daniel Coyle is the New York Times bestselling author of The Talent Code, The Little Book of Talent, and The Secret Race, a book he co-wrote with Tour de France bicyclist Tyler Hamilton, which won the 2012 William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award. Daniel's a contributing editor for Outside Magazine, works as a special advisor for the Cleveland Indians, lives in Cleveland, Ohio, where he's coming from today, and spends his summers where he grew up in Homer, Alaska. It is an honor to meet you. I loved your book, and welcome to the podcast, Daniel Coyle. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. It's good to be here. Well, get us started. I'd really like to understand what motivated you to write a book like this. I mean, what's the inspiration behind all of this? You know, I've been writing about really high-performing individuals and groups for a long time. I did a book called The Talent Code, which is all about sort of what makes individuals great. I looked at sort of the best top individuals, performers in math and music and art and sports, and when I got to the end of that, I realized I had been kind of bumping into a deeper mystery, which was what makes certain groups great? You know, you walk into certain restaurants, you see certain sports teams, you see certain businesses, certain families, certain schools, and they've just got that vibe, you know, and we always, we've talked about that as chemistry or something as, uh, as they just have that special feeling, that culture. And so I got obsessed with that question of where, of where that comes from. And what I realized when I started digging into it, well, actually, I'll tell you where it sort of hit home for me was I was at a tennis club outside of Moscow, this place called Spartak, that had produced more top 20 players than the whole, all of the United States. And a new player showed up, a young girl, and the coach noticed the newcomer on the outskirts, and she was standing uh, outside the court. And the coach went over to her and said, hey, I'm glad you're here. And she said, I want you to do something for me. And the coach tossed this nervous player a ball, a tennis ball. The girl caught it. And... That interaction, like that tennis ball arcing through the air and the girl catching it, that signal of connection, that girl went from being an outsider to being part of the group in that moment. And 
that leader sent a really, it wasn't happened out of some magic. It happened because the leader sent a really clear signal of safety and connection. And so that moment kind of is what sent me on this journey. Along with, for the last five years, I've been working with the Cleveland Indians and they've had more and more success over the years. And I've seen that culture come together in really interesting ways. And so between all of these things, this mystery of, hey, we know that great groups have got this certain feeling. We've always thought of, we always known that culture is really important. But what's it made of? If we were to x-ray it, if we were to bottle it, what would we find? And so that question really is what sent me on this journey and which, uh, you know, ended up me looking into these real specific signals. Well, it's incredibly inspiring to me just listening to you describe your path and journey here. And so as a result of this work, you came away with this understanding that leaders of highly successful cultures essentially do three really uncommon things. That was what really struck me about your book is that this is truly uncommon what they do. And so just to list them out for our audience, number one, they build safety, which is not something we think of in traditional workplaces. Number two, they share vulnerability. And they number three, establish purpose. So what I'd like to do, Daniel, is to dig into these one at a time. So you just sort of introduced this whole idea of connection and safety. Please tell us what it means to make employees safe. And honestly, for any cynical managers we might have in our audience, explain why this isn't an inherently soft and unnecessary leadership practice. Yeah. Let me pull the camera even further back, maybe a couple million years to sort of say, all right, how did human uh, social systems evolve? Um, and they evolved in a world where you, you're constantly in danger. And so we have these systems in our brain, in the very center of our brain, in the areas that evolved long before language did, of sensing danger and sending us signals to get out. And so smart groups, when it comes to building safety, understand that. They over-signal safety because we need to. We're wired to be worried about that. We're wired to be incredibly conscious of noticing a signal that we might not have a future here. And so if we really think about it from these three things, the three things sort of work together. Picture a flock of birds flying through the air. They need to functionally do three things, three functions. They need to stay together. They need to share information about where each other is so they don't collide. And they need to have a direction. Human groups are exactly the same way. There's a deep behavioral grammar. They're called signaling behaviors. It's behaviors you send to signal. Now, how do humans connect? They do that through safety, by signaling, saying, we have a future, I see you, we're connected. How do human beings exchange information? Well, they do that by sharing signals, signaling behaviors of openness, of vulnerability. And then when it comes to direction, how do human beings determine direction? Well, they do that by telling stories and having a clear purpose together. So this is kind of a, a mental model of culture that has to do with the functions of a group. How does a group come together, exchange information, and determine direction? And so a lot of the conversation about culture historically has been, well, culture is a soft skill and it's very nuanced and it's very individual to each group. And what I found was exactly the opposite. What I found that wasn't soft, it was about being really, really clear with these signals. We are, you are safe. We are connected. It was about really clear with these signals of we share vulnerability here. We tell each other the truth. If we hide the truth from each other, it's really hard to function. And they're really, really clear about what direction the group is going. So those three things are, are it's kind of a functional model of how cultures are actually built. Well, you know, I can tell you through my own direct experience, and I have to believe just about anyone listening to this, that we've all worked in organizations for managers who 
managed by fear and intimidation, which is, in my mind, sort of the antithesis of safety, mm-hmm. making people feel very much unsafe. If you don't perform, yep. something bad's going to happen to you, right? Yep. And yep. so that's sort of more of a traditional angle for leadership, as far as I'm concerned, in many cases. And I once had an individual tell me that everything that we're talking about here in this idea of safety is all good and well, but if he's not hitting his numbers by the end of the quarter, he reverts to fear. So I guess I'm wondering how these people, these organizations and the leaders specifically that you studied, how did they know this? How did they arrive at this where most of us haven't? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of them have arrived out of trial and error. And they've, they've, well, a couple of things, a couple of factors here. The first factor is that the world is changing. Top-down authoritative models work. They really do. Like fear works. It just doesn't work when the problem is complicated and it doesn't work when knowledge is dispersed. And our world is increasingly a world where knowledge is dispersed and problems are really complicated. If you're talking about, you know, how to build a Model T in a factory, there's expert knowledge and you can simply tell people what to do and they can do it. But in the world we live in now, the easy problems are gone. So where the easy problems are gone and you can't have one expert know all the answers, you can't use fear. You can't use top-down authoritative cascading methods. You have to build a smart, sort of like a smart flock of birds, a smart school of fish, a smart team where knowledge is dispersed. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that and try to solve complicated problems – it quickly becomes apparent if you're a thoughtful person that the old methods aren't going to work. And so a lot of these leaders that I met had been through experiences. One of them, Dave Cooper, he's a Navy SEAL Team 6 commander. Actually, he's the guy who trained the troops that got bin Laden. And his story is that he'd been through many missions early in his career. We had run-ins with authorities where he was told to do things that he knew weren't right. And so he had kind of these series of come-to-Jesus moments where he realized, I need to do, as a commander, I need to constantly send signals that it's okay for people to speak up. I need people to speak up. So he prohibited people from calling him commander. He said, you can call me Coop or Dave or he also had a swear word he used as his title. (laughs) And you can call me those things, but don't call me commander. And when he would be standing in front of a window, he would ask them, if we were in Fallujah, would you push me out of the way of this window? If I was in danger from a sniper, if you realized I was standing in front of the window without noticing it? And he said, I want to be in a world where you don't have to ask me permission, where you just save me, push me out of the way. So what he realized is you have to oversend those signals. You have to flood the zone with these signals of belonging because of this the way our brains are built, to constantly send that signal to create the kind of conversation. The leader has to give permission for the group. It has to create intense safety for those signals to be sent. You know, Ed Catmull, who's the head of Pixar, had a similar story where he gradually sort of located these methods, almost like natural selection, where you try stuff and top-down authoritative doesn't work or it works on simple problems. But when you get to the complicated stuff, you've got to have empowered, connected people. And the way human beings are built to do that is through a safe connection, not through a connection of fear. Though, as I say, fear works. It just doesn't work for very long. Um, It just doesn't work very well. So if you have a problem that's only one week long and really simple, uh, go ahead and use fear. Knock yourself out. (laughs) Well, you know, just to stick with this, and I'm glad you mentioned the SEAL Team 6 example, because it seems to me that... What's surprising is that the military, including SEAL Team 6, has an orientation towards brotherhood, 
towards family, right? Which is sort of inconsistent with, you know, we're going out there and we're fighting. The internal mantra is we're all in this together and I'm looking out for you, you're looking out for me. And you found that that's very much a component of these organizations. You found that rather than create internal competition, which is what I found so many organizations and leaders doing, they think we're going to have a little internal competition and put people against each other that work on the same team. And what you found is it's just the opposite that these cultures see themselves as being part of a cohesive family where people depend upon each other is the language that you use. So tell us about this. Yeah, team is a family feel. Often they'll shy away a little bit from the family because it's a little bit more like a team. It can be, you know, in families, people don't get cut or fired from families. And sometimes that does happen in high-performing teams. But there is that feeling of interdependence where they're all at the service of a larger goal. And, And that's the thing that the leaders in places were really adept at signaling. There's this kind of false dichotomy, I think, on a lot of teams where they sort of have to say, well, we can either be nice or we can be tough, where they have to sort of choose between those two. And what I found in the groups that I visited, that they often were able to do both because they sent these larger overarching signals of connection. And the San Antonio Spurs were sort of the best at it. They were operating at an incredibly high level. There were people that were internally, as you say, competing for spots. You know, there's only five spots on the floor and there's 15 people on the roster. And so... They would have these intense internal competitions, but the coach, Greg Popovich, constantly send these overarching signals about connection, about team and family. They eat together more often than most families do. That's an incredible behavioral signal. Everyone has to eat, and the Spurs choose to take most of their meals together. In fact, the coaches, at the end of every year, they get an album. They share an album with the menus of the places they visited and the wines that they've enjoyed together. They go to dinner before every game. So within that competition or within the within the roles that people are, you know, in some ways competing, there are these larger signals of family that are constantly being sent to being reinforced, which place that competition into a different frame. It's not framed as me against you, cage match, one of us, two of us enter, one of us leave. It's more like we're both competing for the good of the team. And if the best idea wins and that idea happens to come from you, good for you. If it happens to come from me, good for me. But we're always putting the spotlight on the good of the team and the connections that we share. Well, just for the audience, one of the things that you mentioned since you brought up the San Antonio Spurs, something that I was just kind of blown away with is you said that over the past 20 years, they have a higher percentage of wins. You know, they're obviously in basketball, but if you compare their win percentage to the Yankees or to the New England Patriots, for example, they're the best. And they've won five national championships. So tell us more about Popovich and particularly some of the things you just hinted at a second ago about this idea that by creating a safe environment, by making people feel connected and safe, that he has an ability almost to give greater candor in terms of his coaching and directness of here's what you need to do in order to improve and help the team succeed. Exactly. We think that you have to choose between being candor and being warm, and it's not true. And he shows that. Actually, one of the on the day that I went to visit them, they had just lost a big game the night before. And so the first thing Popovich does is he goes over to the player who missed the big shot. And he starts kind of touching him on the shoulder and giving him a little hug and then talking about the dinner that Popovich had arranged for that player the night before and talking about the wine that Popovich had ordered for the player and his wife the night before. This connection, it goes way beyond what happens on the court. And then that got reinforced for me, too, when they went to watch game film. And what flickers on the screen is not game film. They went and they watched a CNN documentary, a 15-minute CNN documentary about the anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. They're doing that in practice. So – 
they are connecting on think about the dimensions in which those connections are happening coach papa is connecting through food through wine he's connecting by asking them intently what would you have done if you were around during 1964 what would you have done what did your parents do tell me let's talk about that that kind of interest in the person and that signal of deep familial connection and that signal of caring and then at the same time, he's giving them incredibly candorous feedback, high candor feedback on their performance. He's yelling at them. He's telling them exactly what he wants them to do. And those two things aren't, it's not a paradox. They go together. You don't have to choose between being nice and being tough or being excellent. They go together. You know, they, as one of the assistant coach puts it, he said, Popovich does two things. He tells you the truth and he loves you to death. And isn't that great? I mean, to me, that just embodies what makes a great leader, that he's doing both and that they strengthen each other. It's not a choice between the two, that both of them belong together and both of them send a signal that we're excellent and we're about being excellent and we're connected. This totally resonates with me. It's interesting because, uh, you know, people would say, well, if you use one word to describe me, Mark Crowley, as as a leader, you would think, well, people are going to say heart. But what they would more traditionally say is demanding. Mm -hmm. So you're just giving great confirmation that you can be both. And, you know, Popovich is someone, something else that you said in the book that I just want you to tell our listeners about is this completely unconventional thinking. They're in the playoffs and they've just lost the big game that they needed to win. And you would think that they all needed to go their own separate ways and sort of come to terms with it. Instead, he makes reservations in some fantastic restaurant and brings the whole team together. And it becomes almost a celebration, even though they lost. Right. That's not really traditional thinking. And yet it inspires. Right. It's incredible. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's incredible. Exactly what you said. They lost this huge game and Normally, everyone would kind of filter back to the hotels, but they didn't. They had a, this other thing planned, and they went ahead and did it, and they created this wonderful moment of connection, which to me speaks volumes about the way good leaders think. They are constantly tending to this deep question of what's the team connection like? How's the team doing? You know, Everybody's always faced with this repeated pattern of dilemma, which is, should I focus on the productivity and the project, or do I focus on the team dynamics? And what I've seen among the leaders I visited is that they are constantly tending to, putting energy toward and attention toward, how are we getting along? Who is connecting to who? How can I support those connections? What can we create here? And that's what was happening in that room. He realized the team was devastated. They had lost a heartbreaking game. And he realized, no, what we need now is team. What we need now is togetherness. What we need now is, is we need to live our values. In so many places, the values are painted on the wall and they're talked about in, the, in these statements, but that's not behavior. <laughs> the behavior that matters is actually having the guts and the attention to say, okay, I feel as devastated as anybody, but what we're going to do is we're going to go get together here. And he actually, there's one of the assistant coaches that saw this moment. You know, Popovich talks about the importance of leaders getting over yourself. And what he means there is discipline, really, the discipline to kind of choke down your own selfish emotions. Your own, and by selfish, I don't mean self-centered. I mean just your, your emotions, your, the emotions you're experiencing to, to sort of put a lid on that and tend to the team. And the assistant coach talked about seeing Popovich just slump in a chair right before this dinner started, right before he got there early and the bus pulled up afterwards. And there was a moment where Popovich was sitting in the chair and he just looked devastated. He looked as devastated as anybody. And the coach saw him take a deep breath, straighten up, and then walk to the door and start greeting players. And it's like this incredible act of emotional discipline it took to do that. You know, we often think about 
leaders who are good at leading cultures as having big hearts and of being kind of able to channel their emotions. But beneath that, to me, is kind of an emotional athleticism where they're able to control and channel their emotions in ways that normal people find difficult. It'd be very easy for him after that loss to go and just be broken like most of us would be. But that's not why he's great. He's great because he has the discipline and the the self-control to be able to channel that emotion and to be able to give his team a connection when that's exactly, realizing that's what they need and then giving it to him. Well, it's just so generous. You know, just the whole thought process of I'm heartbroken, I'm disappointed, I'm upset, I wanted to win that game, but I want to demonstrate to these guys this isn't the end of the world. So take three breaths and go get them. Yep. That's courage, you know, that's interesting heart in a, in a sense. But, you know, one of the other things that Popovich says, you know, he's walking down the court as you're describing it. It's like, love you, brother, love you, brother. You know, he's like talking to the players like this. And we love this in, you know, as sport fans, we want our coaches to play with heart and give heart and all of that. And yet in business, we think that's like craziness. So my big question for you is, do you think that this, you know, has relevance? I mean, in other words, this whole idea of safety, just to pin this thing down, does it connect to the workplace? Is it any different in the traditional workplace? Well, that's what I saw when I visited these places. They all had their own way. Now, there are different ways to deliver that signal of safety. It depends on the on the specific kind of personality of the leader and the personality of the business. But they absolutely, absolutely did. The most vivid example, I think, was this company called Wipro that I write about in the book, and they were a call center, and they lost 50% of their people every year because working in a call center stinks. And so it's a difficult place to work. They improved the perks. They improved the, the campus. They improved benefits. They improved pay. None of it worked until, they, in desperation, they tried this this like one-hour experiment. And the one-hour experiment was one group got typical preparation. They met a star performer from Wipro. They learned the history of Wipro. And the other group, for one hour, they flipped it. And instead of learning about Wipro, the interviewers asked the new employees about themselves and said, hey, what happens on your best day? And what happens on your worst day? And if we were marooned on a desert island, what skills would you bring to our survival? And they basically just sort of said, hey, tell me about you. I want to learn about you. And that signal changed everything. The group that was in that second group retention went up 270%. A tiny signal can produce a huge behavioral result when it's clear. And this is really about clarity, and that's where Popovich and other leaders are really good at, at sending a signal. It's not – it's warm. I mean it's definitely warm, but it's, it's also more just about being curious, right? It's not – they're not just saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. They're saying, hey, I want to learn about what makes you special. I want to learn about what happens on your best day and your worst day. And so it's that sort of openness and sense of curiosity where that signal of belonging is located. And the reason it works isn't that it's magic. It's that we're wired to respond to those sorts of signals. And it's a signal that says, hey, this is a place where I might have a future. This is a place that actually connects to who I am and is curious about me. That feels different. I like it here. And so it's really, you know, we think about culture as this soft thing. It's not soft. It's in these moments of real clarity when somebody reaches out to somebody else and says, hey, what makes you tick? Tell me. Um, just absolutely fantastic answer. And you anticipated what I was going to ask, which is why does this work? And your definition is, you know, it's just instinctive. We're motivated to reciprocate when we're made to feel that great. And in this call center, because it was such a shift in their behavior and you had this massive increase in you know, lowering turnover, how did they go from being disinterested in employees to suddenly asking them about 
I mean, obviously you were coaching them, but did they do that authentically? Yeah, oh yeah, it was. It was part of an experiment done by Francesca Gino and, and and three other people, and it was absolutely, you know, it was one hour. It was the, the interesting thing was just the brevity of it. It was just this very simple kind of, you know, okay, in one training session we're going to talk about whipper, in the other training session we're going to ask questions about the employees. It was very organic and simple and natural, and it had a massive effect. And what was interesting is I spoke to some of the people who were employees there, and seven months later, a couple years later, they didn't even remember it happening. That's the level at which this happens. It's almost subconscious. They didn't remember that mm-hmm. session. They just said, you know, I just got a really good feeling when I walked in the door. And that was true. But it wasn't magical. It was delivered in these really clear signals. Well, another trait of high achieving cultures that you studied is that the leaders explicitly say thank you a lot. And like Thomas Keller, for example, thanking all of the people that do the dishes in his incredible restaurants, you would think he's just completely on the French laundry, for example, or per se, he's completely focused on doing these exquisite jobs with the meals that he's preparing. And yet he's thanking every single person. And what struck me, Daniel, is this overthinking, Mm -hmm. you know, so we kind of think, well, we have to go into our wallets every time we thank someone. So I'm going to thank you today, Daniel, but don't expect it in the next two or three days because, you know, it's costing me something. And these guys have completely antithetical belief. So tell us about this. Yeah, no, I saw it over and over again. This this overthink. Actually, Coach Popovich of the Spurs at the end of every year, he has a player's end and he says, thank you for allowing me to coach you this year, which I mean, they're paid millions of dollars. No other coach says that. But he's not. The thing to understand about overthinking is you're not actually thanking. You're actually sending a signal of connection and belonging and appreciation. There was an inner city school that I visited. And the eighth grade, they have a wonderful math department, an incredible math department. And the eighth grade students did well on an exam. And so the eighth grade teacher sent an email out to the seventh grade math teachers and the sixth grade math teacher and the fifth grade math teacher who said, hey, your fingerprints are all over this. They did this because of you. They have such a sense of interconnection that they're constantly referencing that connection all the time. And it creates awareness, you know, that the fifth grade teachers can feel connected to what goes on on the eighth grade and in high school. Um, so you're just constantly soaking in these signals of appreciation. And it seems a little bit over the top at first, like, come on, you guys all work mm-hmm. together. You don't have to thank each other all the time. But it's actually just a natural expression of the connection that they feel. And it's not actually about thanking as much as it is reinforcing that connection. So, Daniel, I'd like to take a break from our discussion right now and move into something what we call the heartbeat round. So many people have written to say that they love this part of the podcast. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you 15 quick questions, and your job is going to be to answer each one in a heartbeat. As you're going to see, that these questions are all about you and just help us get to know you a little bit more personally. So you ready? Let's do it. All right. Greatest book you've ever read? The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. Thing you like most about spending summers in Alaska? Backpacking trips with the family. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? New York Times. Quality you most admire in other people? Kindness. Favorite band or singer? The Beatles. Most important thing, you're teaching the Cleveland Indians baseball team. Uh, I'd say they're teaching me more. But if there is one kind of thing we we share discovering, it's that there's great value in studying other domains. Other domains meaning outside of your own industry? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Great value in in, in sort of reaching out and then connecting the dots between different areas of high performance. Fantastic. Quote that best captures your life philosophy. Uh, Making good things happen. Something my dad used to say a lot. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Hmm. Tennis. 
The activity that makes you personally come alive. Family dinners. World leader of any era you most admire. Go with Churchill. The life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier. Uh, Vulnerability is strength. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Uh, Lack of vulnerability. All-time favorite movie. Raising Arizona. (laughs) And the greatest piece of advice you've ever received. Hmm. I'm going to go with how you do anything is how you do everything. And then finally, the proudest accomplishment of Daniel Coyle's life. I'll tell you in 20 years. (laughs) You've got so many. um, And we already know, but uh, not one that just sticks out in your mind, something you're just immensely proud of. Not really. I'm most proud of my family and the kids, and the, but they're they're still growing up, and so it's all aware. Every, everything's a work in progress. Thank you so very much. These are great answers, and thanks for staying with us. As I have a few other big questions, I still want to ask you. I want to go back to something you said a second ago about this being able to give people great candor in feedback based on the fact that you've established such deep rooted trust and a belief that this person really cares about me, that they're willing and able to accept that feedback. Mm -hmm. You use this term called magical feedback in your book, Mm -hmm. and it's a way of giving somebody performance feedback that I just think was so wonderful I had to share it. So could you just explain that to everyone? Yeah, it was actually a Stanford experiment where they had people do a task and then they got, did the task and they got feedback and then they did the task again. And so they it was a way of measuring the efficacy of different kinds of feedback. And there was one type of feedback that worked so well that the researchers called it magical, which doesn't happen much in science. <laughs> but they called it magical feedback. And the feedback was this. I'm giving you this feedback because we have a really high standards in this group and I believe you can reach those standards. So it actually was a bit of feedback that had nothing to do with the task or the information designed. It wasn't about, we think about feedback, we think, well, I've got to give them good information so they know what to do. It wasn't about what, it was about who. It was about, you know, we have high standards here, an identity signal, and I believe you can reach those standards, and this is why I'm giving you this feedback. It's a pure social signal that sort of reinforces, it It puts a spotlight on them and on their connection to the group and on the standards of the group. So it's so interesting because it's the most powerful feedback and yet it has no information on how to get better. It just defines the relationships. And that's what good feedback needs to do. It needs to help define the relationships and the identity of the people in, in the conversation. And that's what Coach Pop does. That's what other leaders do. They're not just saying, hey, do X, Y, and Z. They're saying, here's who you are. Here's what I believe you can do. And here's why I'm giving you this information. It's so we can be better. So it's such a simple, such a simple thing, but it's incredibly powerful. Well, I mean, it sort of implies I see your greatness and I want to help you bring your greatness out. And, you know, do I have permission to do that? Yeah. And I think by the time you you express that to somebody, they're so ready for the feedback. It's like, yeah, bring it on. That's a totally different state of mind than what most managers do to give people constructive feedback. So thank you. It was a brilliant explanation. So I want to move on now to this idea of fostering vulnerability. Great cultures foster vulnerability. So tell us what you learned. Well, when I went out to look at these places, I sort of thought I would find extremely confident. These are very high-performing cultures I visited. You know, Pixar, IDEO, Navy SEAL Team 6, San Antonio Spurs, Zappos, places that are good. You know, top 1% of their domain. I thought, boy, these people are going to be so confident. And I kept finding the opposite. I kept bumping into leaders who would admit weakness. And as Navy SEALs Commander Dave Cooper said, The most important four words a leader can say are, I screwed that up, which was kind of stunning. 
until you learn the science. And, and what the science has shown us, the social science around this has shown us, is that vulnerability, when it's shared, when it's shared, creates closeness. When you do these, there's a series of extraordinary experiments I write about in the book where you create vulnerability, two people being vulnerable together, and then have them do some task, they do better. They trust each other more. They perform each other with more cohesion and cooperation, which is kind of crazy because typically, historically, traditionally, we've always thought that, that trust has to come before vulnerability. We've always thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be vulnerable, but only after I build up trust. Like, I'm going to build up trust, then we can be vulnerable. And we've got it backwards. Vulnerability creates trust. It sparks and it triggers trust. And so, as a result, groups that are successful have these things called vulnerability loops, where they circle up and they tell each other the truth about what's going on. And these conversations are not easy. They are difficult and they're embarrassing and you're admitting weakness and it's hard, but they are the most powerful thing a group can do because it builds closeness and it builds a shared mental model of what they're doing together. You know, when we talk about physical fitness, we understand that no pain, no gain, that to get stronger, you have to experience pain. That's what vulnerability does in, in groups. That's what it is, that it's the pain. It's, it's the pain that creates gain because it helps you build a shared mental model of what you're doing together. I'm thinking about this and listening to you, and I'm thinking back early in my career and this idea of being so self-secure and confident that I could say, hey, I screwed that up. Yep. Those would have been really hard words for me to use early in my, my leadership career. And I think part of it's ego. Part of it is, you know, that you just don't want people to think that you're fallible right. or oh limited in yeah. some way. Exactly. So how do you encourage people to, to get over that? What would your advice be to me 20, 30 years ago? The leader has an outsized role here. The leader has to give people permission to have. And that's why the leaders of the places I visited did it over and over and over again. They over-signaled their own fallibility and vulnerability. So if you're a leader, you've got to be the one to start it. But in your small group, it's funny. There's so many different little ways to do it. Signaling vulnerability, it's scary because it seems like weakness, but actually it's usually about learning. And so what I would have told you 20 years ago is frame this around your learning. Don't just tell everybody, hey, I don't have a clue. Say, no, I really want to learn about this new way of coding or I don't tell me more about that. Those three words of tell me more can be incredibly powerful way of expressing, sending a signal of weakness that it's okay. We're here to learn together or it's a we're simple flat hierarchy. So I want to learn from you. So framing it around learning. And the second thing I would tell you to do would be to send the two line email. Of course, email didn't exist 20 years ago, but if it did, <laughs> I'd tell you to send an email that said, Hey, Send it to the people you work with and say, this is a suggestion from Laszlo Bach, who used to work at Google People Analytics. It's mm -hmm. a simple email that just says, hey, tell me one thing you want me to keep doing and one thing you want me to stop doing, which is really easy to do, really small message, but it sends an incredibly powerful signal of, I want to learn. I want to learn from you. Teach me. Help me. Help me be better. That's a signal of profound vulnerability that can create all kinds of conversations, and it can often create a cascade of similar requests when you send it in an organization. But it's easy to do. It's not high risk. And especially if you're an organization that's a learning organization, it's, it's almost – it's necessary. So that's deeper realization that when you first encounter vulnerability, it looks scary. But the deeper, the more you encounter it, and the more you think about good leaders that you know, the more you think about good organizations know, you realize that vulnerability, it's a necessity if you want to get better. Every group has two choices. We can either hide our weaknesses from each other, or we can share them. 
and groups that hide their weaknesses are weak. And groups that share their weaknesses become strong because they learn. I read some of the comments that people have written about your book, The Culture Code, on Amazon, and struck me. A church pastor wrote to say that he'd had this epiphany after reading your book and had realized that for many years that he'd been pretending to be perfect all the time and that he'd effectively alienated his entire congregation by destroying trusts. Like you're acting like you're Jesus, if you will, you know? And so his lesson from you then was that by displaying greater vulnerability, he effectively gave his followers, just kind of what you described, the permission to show their own vulnerability. And so this is a power. I mean, this is a great leadership power when you make people feel safe enough and comfortable enough to say, hey, I'm really struggling here, or I really need some help here, or instead of, I'm not going to reveal that to my manager because he or she's going to judge me very harshly, and that's going to hurt me. Exactly, exactly. And it's how we're built. You know, To create that vulnerability loop is incredibly powerful, and it, it sends a real signal that we're here to get better together. And it kind of, and it's so simple. You know, that's the thing, that's the thing that's powerful about it. I've even applied it at my own dinner table, you know, that moment where your kids come and you say, how was their day? And they you know, that conversation never goes well. <laughs> Instead of asking them how their day, I've started to kind of open up conversation by telling something I screwed up at that day. You know, some some silly, I called Mark Mike instead of Mark during our podcast today, whatever it might be, something small. Then you kind of let the conversation go. And it sends such a powerful signal that it's okay to talk about that stuff. It gives everybody permission. It opens up the door. And that's the goal of all this stuff, to open up the door. Even dad can be vulnerable. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, the final key ingredient of all the top cultures you studied is that they established a meaningful purpose. And purpose is now like, it's crazy how much I'm reading about purpose and meaning, and they're used interchangeably. And I don't think many people really truly understand what an organizational purpose is meant to accomplish, but you do. So tell us about it. Yeah, purpose is really, you know, to go back to our sort of image of, you know, say a flock of birds moving through, they need to know what direction to go. You know, they need to know where, where north is. They need to have that clarity. And so when I visited a lot of the cultures, I found that they over-communicated their purpose by like 10 times what I would expect them to do. <laughs> they, they had tons of corny mantras, actually, tons of them, where they would sort of repeat the same phrases and the same ideas over and over to each other, and the same phrases would be, would be everywhere. The windshield was full of them. And at first, that didn't make any sense until you start to think of it as a navigational process. Um, they over-communicate that stuff because that is how – that helps people navigate toward true north, toward a solution. So it's so it, it's important to formulate that purpose and to, to sort of dig that purpose out of the ground. And it's doubly important to broadcast, over-broadcast that purpose. You know, we sort of think of groups' purpose as being, you know, sort of just, you know, sort of one story or one word or one phrase. And that can be effective. But what I saw more often was like an ecosystem of aligned stories and metaphors and purposes that all added up to the same sort of overall message. So you think of sort of an ecosystem of stories. And the restaurant owner, Danny Meyer, was sort of the best at this. He would build these mantras. It almost turns out to be like a mantra map of these really clear signals that he wants his people. What is true north? creating raves. That is what they want to do. That is what they're all about, creating raves. How do we do that? Well, they do that by athletic hospitality. Mistakes are waves. Servers are surfers. We look for the excellence reflex. 
We love problems. All these little phrases that are kind of all corny, they make you wince a little bit. Hmm. They actually are really smart software to help focus people's attention on the right thing and to help them solve problems in the right way. And all of them made sense to me one day when I saw somebody spill a big glass of trays at one of his restaurants. And Danny Meyer looked at that interaction and I said, what are you looking at? He said, I'm looking to see one of two things is going to happen right now as these trays, these glasses are all over the floor. He says, the people in this restaurant, the workers here are going to come together and the energy level is going to go up as they solve the problem or they're going to come together and there's going to be some hint of anger or resentment. The energy level is going to go down. It was a beautiful litmus test for culture. How do you respond when there's a problem? Does the energy go up or down? And that's when all that stuff really started to make sense to me. All these corny mantras, loving problems, athletic hospitality, all that stuff adds up to sort of a, a GPS map that helps you navigate and know what to do. And that's where smart cultures and strong cultures succeed. They fill the windshield with really vivid metaphor story and signal to help guide people when there are problems and when there's not. Employees don't, you know, just to push back on this from an understanding standpoint, you've been there for five years. Do you get tired of seeing these things on the wall or do they keep you inspired? Uh, you know, I think it is. They do. They sort of blend in a while. It sort of feels like summer camp, like there's a familiarity to them, but he's constantly refreshing them. He's almost like a composer in a laboratory working out new ways of saying this message. And he's obsessed with it, actually, because a lot of the ones he comes up with are kind of bad and kind of corny. So he has to refine them and make them better. And the other thing they do is to sort of constantly be looking for new stories, be in conversation with the people there when somebody comes up with a great solution to deliver butter in a smarter way to a restaurant, to be the kind of a leader who hears about that and who shares that and who makes that innovation spread to all the restaurants. So that sort of a function, which is really a purpose function where you're tending to the windshield of stories that your people are paying attention to, rather than just letting the world fill the windshield with whatever's out there, is a really important one too. That It's not something that's written in stone and forgotten about, but it's a living conversation and a living curated ecosystem of stories that get shared and spread and grow. So you use this word mantras, but there's something else that you talk about in the book, which is that all these organizations, they all have a credo mm -hmm. and that that effectively becomes the fundamental driving force of the organization. So link up this idea of a meaningful purpose with what a credo is and what you know an organization, if I'm listening to this, what should my credo look like? Yeah, a credo can be a, a really... It's like the smallest, most potent version of your purpose, the sort of the smallest, handiest one that you can sum up in the, in the fewest amount of words. And so that is not the only distillation of your culture, but it's sort of the, the one that is at the top of all the stationery, the one that gets handed around. Um, in Danny Meyer's world, that would be creating raves. That's what we're about at the bottom, bottom, bottom line. And the, having that as a North Star can be incredibly powerful and effective. But I want to emphasize that's not the only version you've got. You know, you've got to capture stories that capture that moment. You've got to capture other ways. What's behaviors support that? How do you define those behaviors? So it's this whole story ecosystem of, I guess we could divide them into big stories and small stories. You know, the big story being things like the credo and the small stories being the smaller things that support them. Well, the thing that you're pointing out, though, that's essential here is that you just can't launch this stuff. You have to keep it alive, which is seems like Danny Meyer's gift is 
sharing stories amongst restaurants of a better way to deliver butter may not sound all that inspiring, except that when people read it, they're like, oh, that's cool. We can do that here. And this is what's going on over there. And everybody feels connected. It has all these benefits that many of us would think is really not all that valuable. Right? Right. Exactly. Well, uh, talking about Danny Meyer, something else that is, uh, and by the way, for our audience, Danny Meyer is the owner of the world famous Union Square Cafe in New York, 11 Madison Park, and the famous Shake Shack, and just an absolutely phenomenally successful restaurateur. And one of the things that he says is that it's not customers first, which in a service oriented business, you would think oh, that's crazy. It's all about the employee first. This is an idea that is sort of gaining new ground, but really not in much in practice yet. And yet he's mastered it. So tell us what you saw there. Yeah, they went through a kind of a crisis where they had to decide where their priorities were. Are their priorities really their suppliers or their customers or their stockholders? Who's really, who are we really in this for? And what they realized through conversation was, hey, it's about our relationships with each other. If we get those right, if we treat each other like we'd want to be treated and if we treat each other like these jobs are an incredible privilege and we treat each other right, everything else will sort of cascade from that you know, in their business. They have to cooperate in so many different ways. And I saw that same kind of putting the relationship first in the, a lot of other organizations that I visited. What relationship was most important? It usually was with each other because if you figure that out, if you treat each other the best possible way, the rest kind of falls in line. Wow. Well, I could talk to you for hours, and I think our audience would probably want to you know, listen to you for hours. But I guess just to kind of conclude here, I wonder if there's just something about great cultures or more than one thing about great cultures that you observed that I didn't ask you about, but something you just think, I've got to express this because it's too valuable from what I learned. Yeah, I guess one of the big things that didn't get in the book was the fact when I went into it, I thought great cultures are going to have everything figured out. Like they'll get to a spot where all the tensions will disappear and working there will just be magic and frictionless and wonderful. And I couldn't have been more wrong. Actually, these great cultures are more high candor. They don't, it's not like you ever get to a spot over the rainbow where tensions disappear. Human beings are fallible and we make all kinds of crazy decisions all the time. Great cultures still have problems. They still have tensions. What's great about them is that they realize it and they face inward toward them and they solve them. And they, they work on them and they realize they haven't got it figured out. So that's the thing. And I think one of the barriers, I think frustrations that a lot of us have as we try to big cultures in our own community and our own workplace and our own teams and our own families is the is is that there's some perfect ideal higher plane out there where everything will be perfect. And that's not true. You're dealing with human beings here and you want to get to a spot where you're facing into the tensions, but they're not controlling you. You're controlling them. Well, just incredible. On behalf of me and our entire audience, I really just have to say how much I appreciate you coming on and for writing the book, The Culture Code, which everyone knows is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and any other bookstore, and really for sharing your insights. I kind of felt like, not just in reading it, but in listening to you right now, that we got to go to some of these organizations that you went with. We got a feel for what those are all about. And it's just been a true delight. Cool. So, Daniel, thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. Before we go, I also want to thank all of you for your early support for this podcast. It takes a village to build a large audience, and it can't happen without your word-of-mouth recommendations. And if you haven't yet subscribed, I hope you will, because my plan is to publish a new podcast every two weeks, and subscribers receive the download immediately and automatically. 
And as always, I want to thank my wonderful sound engineer and podcast editor, Eric Oz, my very hardworking and dedicated website manager, Randy Yunt, and this time, the great Duke Ellington, who wrote and recorded our podcast theme song, Take the A-Train, 80 years ago. Until next time, this is Mark C. Crowley reminding you that when you lead from your heart, your people will surely follow. Signing off for now. Thank you.